following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Thursday, June 13th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are a few candidates for a president who will be debating the TV, but not on the TV. In two weeks' time, yesterday, NBC and the NBC family of networks announced an extended family of moderators to play a sort of zone defense on the 20 candidates who will be debating. Apparently, Savannah Guthrie is going to lock up Bernie in a box in one, while Lester Holt and Rachel Maddow try to keep Beto and Gillibrand out of the low post as Jose Diaz-Balart displays the lockdown perimeter defense on Harris Warren, Booker, Swalwell, Chuck Todd, fierce rim protector, not in my house, Tulsi Gabbard. But left out in a D-League all their own will be the likes of Steve Bullock, Seth Moulton, Wayne Messam, and Mike Gravel. Now, at this point, Mike Gravel is apparently a meme. He's possibly a hologram. Seems to be operated by two college kids out of their dorm room. But Steve Bullock and Seth Moulton are bona fide elected officials. And so is Wayne Messam. But he's elected to a city. It's more of a town, really. It's the fourth biggest town in his county. Steve Bullock got 255,000 votes for the office he holds. Seth Moulton got 217,000 votes for the office he holds. Wayne Messam got 5,848 votes. Now, if you want to say, what about Mayor Pete? He only got 8,500 votes. Yes, but, and this is the most salient point, a significant number of people would like him to be president. No one wants Wayne Messam to be president. No one has told a pollster they'd like him to be president. No one has given him any money towards the goal of being president. And very few people voted for him. Turnout in Broward County was, on election day, 9%. Why do we even mention Wayne Messam's name on the list of announced candidates who've been denied a space? Why isn't he alongside the wackadoo long shots who we could safely ignore? I'll tell you why. It's Marianne Williamson. That's it, isn't it? Right? Once Oprah's guru pulls or fundraises her way into the debates, we no longer have a threshold for saying, okay, below this, you're too wacky to even be mentioned in the coverage of not getting coverage. You can argue for Messam, Bullock, and Moulton not getting invited to the debate. It's better coverage than what Tim Ryan or John Hickenlooper are going to get by being in the debate. This uh, day or two of stories about the guys who weren't debated, at least that sets them apart. It's a differentiator. Everyone in the debate is just some other guy or woman in the debate. It takes a special kind of Democrat to be left out of the debates. They have that special something. Bullock, Moulton, Messam, and virtual reality Mike Ravel won't even have to deal with Jose Diaz-Balart wrestling the mic away and wagging a finger saying, not in my house. On the show today in the spiel, it's an episode of This is Stupid, which really doesn't narrow it down in 2019 America, does it? But first, a great new book from a young, youngish writer who's proving himself to be a master of the nonfiction form. David Epstein's last book was The Sports Gene, and now he's out with a new one about whether it's better to be a Federer or a Tiger Woods? The answer clearly is a Federer, unless you want back pain and dozens of concubines, maybe hundreds. But the two are actually archetypes that illustrate the central discussion contained in range. 
Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David Epstein, up next. In 2014, David Epstein was invited to the Sloan Analytics Conference. It's where all the uh, MIT-based conference, where all the nerds and sports jocks convene. And he was, he was invited to debate Malcolm Gladwell, who has this famous theory that with 10,000 hours of practice, you get better at something. So let's call, for the sake of argument, Gladwell a specialist, a man who believes in specialization. Epstein had a different view. He believed in generalization, and he took the debate as an opportunity to form a hypothesis, to test the hypothesis, and from there, we'll find out about the debate, and we'll also find out about the results of that exercise, which is the book that's sitting right here on my desk, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David, thanks for coming on The Gist again. Thank you for having me. So did you have this intuition that generalism was right, or did you go in having any uh, research on it? Well, why'd they tap you to debate him is my question. Well, because I wrote this book, The Sports Gene, and I criticized his work, basically. Um, And more so, I criticized... It was really the problem was with the underlying science of the 10,000-hour rule. And so when I wrote The Sports Gene, it critiqued him. They invited us there to kind of have this debate. And, you know, he's very clever, and I'd never met him before, and I didn't want to get embarrassed. So... Uh, did some homework, and I, I, I tried to anticipate what he'd argue. I said, he's going to have to argue early specialization. It's like a core part of some of the things he's written. And so I said, well, all right, I'm going to do a search through all the literature I can find and look at when we actually track athletes, like what does it look like? And the answer was it's they have what scientists call sampling period. They play a variety of sports. They learn these broad general skills that scaffold later skills. They learn about their interests, learn about their abilities, systematically delay specialization until later than peers. And so I kind of called this the Roger versus Tiger problem. Tiger Woods, we know, super early specialization. Roger Federer did kind of everything. Basically, he was the total opposite. And my question was, which of these is the norm? Yeah. And it turns out it's it's the Roger path. And, and golf also happens to be a horrible model of almost every other skill people want to learn. So we've been extrapolating from the wrong story. And when, when Gladwell and I came off that stage, he kind of said, you know what you got me on was that Roger versus Tiger thing. And then we became running buddies a couple blocks from here, Fort Greene Park, and we would talk about it on our own time and eventually decide to expand it to other domains. Did the subsequent discussions with Malcolm Gladwell actually spark more intuitions on your part? It just made me curious if I would find this same pattern in other domains. But eventually I just sort of filed it in the back of my head, mm-hmm. really. And I, I was just starting a new job at ProPublica. And so it wasn't something I was ready to take on. But then I got involved with the Pat Tillman Foundation where they give scholarships to military veterans, soldiers, military spouses to aid in career changes, essentially. And I gave a talk there about some of this late specialization in sports and they like jumped on it and were like, we're all behind. And I mean, two days later, I got a an email from a Navy, ex-Navy SEAL who was in the crowd who was had undergrad degree in geophysics and history and was in Dartmouth and Harvard at the same time in public administration and business saying... I feel so relieved. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm like, are you kidding, man? You've been made to feel behind. They brainwash this guy. Yeah, like, then maybe I should look into this a little more. You're a generalist. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I started, I... But Malcolm's a generalist, too, is the weird thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, of course, generalist, you know, broad and specialized is about degree and to some degree about semantics. But, I mean, I was going down a science track, Mm -hmm. right, And, and that unexpectedly to me, turned out to be by far the most valuable thing for me at Sports Illustrated. What were you, geology major? Uh, Yeah, and astronomy, yeah. Good. And I went to grad school. So like moon rocks were exactly the middle of your Venn diagram. (laughs) I I mean, I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided for sure I was going to try to be a 
a writer. Yeah. Um, and I started, you know, when I finally got into SI, I was as a temp fact checker, and it was these weird skills that I had that kind of like vaulted me, you know, past people who were waiting in line to be like the, tw- you know, the twentieth in line to be the next beat reporter for whatever sport. When people, when young people ask me for advice on what to do to break into sports, I tell them, get a niche specialty. Like, if you want to be a baseball reporter, learn everything about, say, the mechanics of umpiring or learn to speak Korean and Japanese. That would be really good. So is this good advice or bad advice? Like, to differentiate yourself, really learn something, gain some expertise in some ancillary area. I think differentiating is good. I, I think in some ways what you're telling them is to take like a skill that's normally somewhere else and bring it into this yeah. domain. And, and that I think is a good thing, right? So whereas I was a totally ordinary scientist, once I was moving the area of journalism, it looks like I'm like a oh, science yeah. specialist, right? Because suddenly it's extraordinary, even though I was totally average in this other area. But it would have been insane for someone whose dream as an eight-year-old to work in SI to spend this 10,000 hours trying to be a writer. Like, uh, I don't know what that would even look like. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what that would look like yeah. either. And, and I think I think the important thing, one of the, one of the classic findings that I, I kind of hammer on in the book in different ways is it can be summarized as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Transfer is what psychologists, the word they use when they mean taking skills or knowledge and being able to apply them in situations you have not seen before. Mm-hmm. And what predicts your ability to do that is how broad your training is. So that you you learn not just procedures you can use, but these sort of more general models that are flexible that you can apply. And so even if you were getting started earlier as a writer, what you should make sure to do is really vary up those challenges. So in the writing of this book where, you know, the sports scene was an organizational challenge, this was much more so. When I got stuck, I took an online fiction writing course and that like got me out of my rut. And I think you know, allowed me to do something I hadn't done before. Why? What, what about fiction? I was stuck with figuring out how to organize. And when I went into that class, first of all, it just, it just gave me the sense of being a beginner again. You know, I wasn't, I, I realized certain types strategies, like uses of like certain types of line breaks that I was relying on just out of instinct. Yeah. And relying on using quotes in a certain way, just out of instinct. I didn't even realize I was doing. So then I take that class and I, we have to, some of the exercise where you have to write only with dialogue and some you can't use dialogue at all. Went back through the whole manuscript, started stripping out all these quotes that weren't that good. And then I had just been like relying on to tell the story for me in a way that I shouldn't have done. And, and it made me realize I didn't even realize certain habits that were so ingrained that until I sort of broke out of them, I wasn't being a good editor of myself. So this is good. This isn't just that you got into a different mindset and you started seeing the world in a different way and it seeped into your work. This was really taking wholesale the lessons of this fiction course and boom, putting it in your book. It sort of freaked me out a little bit though, because then I went back and I was like, what was I thinking with like quoting this and this and this? Like these aren't even good quotes. Like I should explain these things. And so it, it made me wary realizing that even being aware that you should diversify challenges, I-, I was like no better at escaping that actual cognitive bias in practice until I got outside and did something else. But it seems that you have this ability, I don't know if this is a generalization, but to really self-assess and to honestly blow the whistle on yourself. So and like Gladwell did in your debate, but also, you know, in the sports gene, if you look in the back material, some of your citations are criticizing articles in Sports Illustrated that you wrote. Did I tell you that before? Nobody's ever called me on that before. I, I, I did my research. Okay. No, you didn't. Um, well, maybe I told somebody that before because nobody's really ever called me that, but I did cite some of my own articles as having been wrong because once I, like the first year of my books, all I do is try to read 10 journal articles a day, every day for the first year. And in doing that, even having written a 7,000 word article, I realized I'd gotten some things wrong. Not like straight factual errors, right? but 
things that people with PhDs had told me, which they could not actually conclude from their data. And once I went through it in a lot more detail, I realized those things were wrong. And so I yeah, felt, you relied on the expertise yeah, fallacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. But this like calling out yourself sort of thing. This is like one of the main habits of so-called self-regulatory learners, people who don't stay on plateaus as long of skill. They really reflect on on what they're doing very actively and, and are kind of self-critical. Okay. So is a generalist more likely or able to be that? Because if you're a specialist and, the th- and it, it would seem to have such higher stakes to blow the whistle on yourself, because that's the only yeah. thing you got. Yeah. If you say, you know what? I've been playing the violin for 15 years and I've listened back to the tapes and I'm just no good. You don't have maracas to fall back on. No. And, and let me give you an example. So there's, that relates to sort of two things in the book. The first one in, in chapter 10, which looks at expert political and economic prediction. Um, and this was a 20-year study to figure out how good were expert predictions about world trends. And usually when we see people on TV, they're just like, strong probability this will happen, strong possibility. Like that doesn't, you don't even know what that means. So this was 20 years, specific predictions had to be made with specific probabilities and specific deadlines. And it turned out that the worst forecasters were the most narrow specialists, like people who had spent their whole life studying one problem, because no matter what they had to predict, they would bend everything into this one model that they had. But to your point about them not being self-critical, here's what's even crazier. First of all, they got worse as they accumulated credentials because they had enough information to fit any story that lens. But if you're a proper like Bayesian thinker for the statistics people, when you go wrong, you should update your mental model. You know, you may still believe what you believe, but you should be a little less confident. Mm Mm-hmm. The most specialized people who were the worst forecasters sometimes went horribly wrong in a prediction and updated in the wrong direction by strengthening the beliefs yeah. that, that sent them the wrong way. Like that is, a hiker in Hawaii who is <laughs> convinces herself that she's going in the right direction. Right. And so when you're reinforcing the beliefs that led you astray, like you are – you have lost all orientation of mm. any kind of self-critical analysis. Um, I was thinking of Dave Grohl. Did you look into him at all? I did not. Yeah. So he played, he's a multi-instrumentalist and he plays everything. And uh, if it was possible, Foo Fighters would be just one guy. I mean, people like him and, and like Prince and all, and some of these, this the orphan uh, orchestra that I describe in range, if the strict way of thinking about the 10,000 hour rule were true, then they then their time spent on different instruments would be in zero-sum competition with, with each other, and they would not be able to get good at that many instruments. But it turns out that when you diversify across instruments, the number of hours you need to pick up any subsequent ones gets lower and lower. It right. lowers that threshold. Right, right. It's a little like, for some people, languages. But it does, it seems important and significant to me if we're thinking about this, well, how should I treat my children and how much uh, should I specialize? You know, Grohl played just guitar, from 12 to 16, and then he got interested in drums, and then he was a guitarist and a drummer. But it seems to me if starting at 12, he did drum lessons three days a week and guitar lessons three days a week, that would have been worse for his output and, you know, American listeners as well. Maybe, maybe. Hard to know for sure in in particular scenarios. And I don't think we should, like, prescribe... I don't think we should, like, prescribe diversification any more than we should prescribe specialization. Yes. But the... Um, but it does seem like we're unnaturally convinced. We've been convinced that specialization is the way to go. And if nothing else, if this book stands as a counterargument to that, it's done its job. It does stand as a counterargument to that. And I think, um, you know, the appro- so I, I'm a new parent and, and I'm taking a, kind of an approach. I'm not worried about missing the next Tiger Woods or Mozart, for example, for first of all, because yeah. 
we tell those stories wrong. In fact, as Tiger Woods said, his father never asked him to play yeah. golf. It Although was all his you read that you read the Catean and Benedict book. Yes. It yes. seems like there was more of a psychological experiment going on, and the father just convinced Tiger to ask to play golf. Well. Or like did a number on him so that he could. But, but he initially responded to Tiger's display of this like very unusual prowess and interest in it. You know, the things he did after, same with Mozart's father, who yes. initially responded to Mozart's right. interest. Like the first time Mozart asked to play with musicians came over, he was like, nobody's, you haven't had a lesson, go away. And some other musician said, well, I'll go play with him because he started crying. And then his father like hears music coming from the next room. So I don't think. And then that musician writes a letter saying, second violin, this guy's as good as the first violinist. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and actually, I remember the letter says like Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist that actually he could play the first violin also. (laughs) Um, But so I'm not really worried about missing that. So the approach I like is this one that the army started to implement where they used to be very upper out. And now they have this something called talent-based branching, where um, instead of saying you're going into this career path, you know, try to move up or out, uh, they say here's a bunch of career areas. They pair them with a coach, and they say dabble in these. The coach will help you reflect on did this fit your strengths and interests, and will sort of zigzag until you get a better match. And then you will know about all these other things out there, so you can integrate with your colleagues. But but we want to work toward getting you the right match. And they've had much better success in developing officers and retention with that talent-based branching. So I would kind of see my role as that coach for a kid, it, it facilitate exposure to opportunities. And that, 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 those experiences, even if they don't go into it, will not be wasted. You, can, you bring that knowledge into other domains, and I'll just be the coach that helps them reflect and make sure that they get the maximum amount of learning from those experiences. Here's my last question. It seems to me, and you write about this implicitly or explicitly in the book, all of our best-known social science studies are either wrong or more accurately put, misinterpreted. So your grit study, the marshmallow study, the Stanford prison and the Milgram shock study, the Malcolm's 10,000 hours study, priming and power poses. Like what is, this isn't just replication. There seems to, and I'm not talking about, I didn't choose a grab bag of some of the most known social studies. These are one through 10, basically. What is going on? So, I mean, I confess in range to having research that is still currently published that I'm now pretty darn sure is not right. Or if it's right, then it's just by luck. And what happened was when I went into grad school, instantly I go into learning didactic information about Arctic plant physiology and never learned how scientific methodology should work, how to determine how you know if something is true, how statistics work, which has gotten really dangerous because there's such powerful computer programs for statistics, you don't have to learn it. You get a huge database. Big data has made it way easier to do crap science. Also easier to do certain kinds of good science. But And so, you know, I was running statistical tests on this huge databases, not realizing that the way I was doing that and the methodology I was using was ensuring that I would find spurious results. And only as a, a journalist writing about poor scientific practices did I start to go like, wait a minute, this is what I did. And, and so we have this whole generation, right? And, and, I, and, and I got rewarded for it with an Ivy League master's degree. And so we have this whole generation of people who were not taught how the fundamental broad concepts and skills should work before they're shoved into a specialization. So that's why in the last chapter, I kind of profile one of the most prominent scientists in the world who's at Johns Hopkins right now starting a program explicitly to despecialize the training of scientists who we normally consider the people who are like the most specialized in the entire world. Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. And now, the spiel. 
And this is stupid. On this edition of This is Stupid, we begin by reading this description of a policy stance of an expert. This is provided by the New York Times, quote, Jessica Beale recently visited California state lawmakers to oppose new restrictions on medical exemptions to the state's mandatory vaccination law. Here's what you need to know. I'll tell you what I need to know. None of that. Lots of celebrities have lots of scientifically backwards ideas. Gwyneth Paltrow makes a fortune shoving jade eggs up her hoo-ha. Kyrie Irving doesn't believe in dinosaurs. But the thing that's really stupid is the explanation of why this star of, let's say, movies or maybe a TV show, what she actually believes. Again, she visited California state lawmakers to oppose new restrictions on medical exemptions to the state's mandatory vaccination laws. I understand some of these words, mandatory restrictions. I think I get exemptions. But she opposes the restrictions of the exemptions to the mandate? Huh? Perhaps we could get a referendum on a plebiscite to carve out safe harbors for her opposition to the restrictions of the exemptions to the mandate, which are about vaccinations. So in other words, we would offer indemnifications or absolution to an opposition over the restrictions of the exemptions to the mandate for the immunity offered by inoculations. What I'm saying is this, Jessica Biel is an anti-vaxxer, or maybe she's an anti-pro-vaxxer. Or maybe she's anti-antibiotics as part of a probiotic diet. All I know is this. I never saw Seventh Heaven and therefore am actually unfamiliar with any of the movies she's been in. I did see I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, which it says she did have a role in and there is no inoculation from that. In other This Is Stupid news, here now you're about to listen to a representative from the Guinness Book of World Records and This Is Stupid. So I'm here today in Germany. Um, I've been invited by Honda to officially witness this Guinness World Records attempt for the fastest acceleration from 0 to 100 miles per hour by a lawnmower. Lawnmower. A very fast lawnmower. That not to exist. Why would you need a lawnmower that goes 100 miles an hour? How much grass is really going to be cut at that speed? These aren't the questions Guinness was obsessed with. Instead, they focused more on basic taxonomy. The vehicle must intrinsically look like a lawnmower. That's pretty precise. But you'll be happy to know that the qualifications don't end with just that. And it also must be able to cut grass. Oh, not only must it look like it cuts grass, it must cut grass. But wait, what if the thing really did mow the lawn, just didn't look like it mowed the lawn? Then it wouldn't count as a lawnmower? I don't know, perhaps it would be an extremely fast cow. So, did the lawnmower set the record? Let's find out. I can now confirm that this lawnmower built by Honda... Stop. Just stop. This is not a world record. This is stupid. And this is stupid. This is somebody that said, we have information on your opponent. Oh, let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life doesn't the work FBI that way. The FBI director says that's what should happen. The FBI director is wrong. Look. If we didn't use a lot of discernment, Mr. Trump would be the leadoff batter, meat, and kicker of the This Is Stupid segment for all time. And we can't let that happen. So in fact, I don't want to even hold up the stupid thing he said as the stupid thing on This Is Stupid. No, let's go to Fox, which, 
by decree, had to defend the indefensible. Of course, no matter what he says, there's always good justification. You could usually pick from an assortment of three general justifications. One, that's not what he meant. Two, he was joking. You don't get the joke. What are you, humorless? Three, the Dems do it too. On this one, with a little gloss of, and isn't it great how upset the other side got? They went with three. Well, the mainstream media melting down over the president telling ABC that he would listen if a foreign government offered him damaging information about a political opponent. But isn't that exactly what Democrats did in 2016? No, it is not. Since you asked, the Democrats commissioned Oppo Research, legal and ethical, from a U.S. firm, Fusion GPS, who had an employee, Christopher Steele, who's a foreigner. This is as illegal as hiring a firm to direct a campaign commercial. And the makeup artist on the shoot is a Guatemalan, or let's say, or Norwegian. Luckily, Fox brought out a professional. Constitutional law attorney Jenna Ellis Reeves is here uh, to shed some light on all of this for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Jenna Ellis Reeves teaches at Colorado Christian University, which doesn't have a law school. Jenna Ellis Reeves is the author of The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution, which she wrote because, quote, law school teaches that law is arbitrary and flexible, depending on the current majority whim. This presents a conflict when dealing with our constitution, which is predicated on the biblical worldview. Yeah. What what was that? Don't they didn't they order the amendments and then the first one say something? Anyway, 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 don't want to question the constitutional scholar. Here was the question that was put to her. This is what Democrats did, especially when it comes to the Steele dossier, because you have the Steele dossier written by Christopher Steele, who was from Great Britain. And then you have his information coming from Russian sources. Right. Wrong. Like I said, it's not analogous. It does muddy the waters. Accepting opposition research from foreigners is wrong and illegal. The Steele dossier is not wrong and illegal. Robert Mueller, in his report, said the reason he did not indict Donald Trump Jr. for accepting opposition research from foreigners, i.e. the meeting with Veselnitskaya in Trump Tower, is that Robert Mueller couldn't prove Donald Trump Jr. knew it was wrong. By this time, you got to figure Donald Trump Sr. might not admit it, but he knows it's wrong. All right. Here was the professor's answer to this question. Here was her analogy. And so for the Democrats calling for impeachment Mm -hmm. uh, when they're supposedly advocating for free and fair elections is like using your First Amendment uh, right to exercise freedom of speech by calling for government censorship. I'd like to note that using free speech to call for censorship is not hypocritical. It's what anyone who's ever spoken out loud against child porn laws or written an op-ed in support of child porn laws has done. It's not hypocritical to call for both free elections and then also to advocate for impeaching a president who breaks the law. Wait, on the one hand, you say you want free elections, but on the other, you also don't want a president influenced by a foreign power that was trying to influence the election? Hypocrites? No. It's not hypocritical, and it's not wrong, and it's not an accurate representation of what went down in that interview. But you know what it is? This is stupid. And this has been This Is Stupid. See you next time, and remember, stay stupid. Should I say that, or is it stupid? And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader produce the gist. They specialize in editing interviews, but have enough range to pause and engage in in-depth discussions of Seventh Heaven. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, she engaged in a thorough fact check of her past decrees 
and would like to publicly announce that her tweet of December 2017 is no longer valid. Russell Brand is not the future of podcasting. The gist just announced the too hot for TV debate between all the candidates excluded from the stage in Miami. You'll get Messam, Bullock, Moulton, Mullock, Bolton, and the Mike Ravel dank memes. Plus, Howard Schultz, Howard Schultz's back surgeon, Michael Avenatti, Sherrod Brown, Mitch Landrew, Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey's security detail to keep between herself and Michael Avenatti, 1984-era Mario Cuomo and Henry Clay, and so much more. Send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Too Hot for TV Debates, P.O. Box 2020, Pueblo, Colorado, with no Chuck Todd to ride herd, this lot will burst through the TV set with their antics, proposals, grievances, lolcats, talking points, federal charges, misguided both sideism and rumored mob ties. Be there, be square, in this case, neither. Too hot for the debate stage. Unlike these candidates, don't miss it. Oomperu de peru and thanks for listening. <laughs>